Hello and welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games. My name is Michael Walker and I'm here with my good friend Mark Bigney. How are you today, Mark? Quite well, thanks. How are you? Today's proverb is being a better ambassador to this wonderful hobby that we have of board games. Just let it to be known that when you're at sitting at a table with new players or any players for that matter, try to make it fun for everyone. Everyone's time is sacred and remember everyone is there to have fun. That being said, let's get on to the games we played this week. Then some news, today's main feature game, which will be Battle Lore by Fantasy Flight. And today's topic is board game hacks in real life. So Mark, what did you play this week? We played Path of Light and Shadow. I'd commented previously that I wanted to get get it to the table again to see if my suspicions were borne out. Specifically, this is a deck building game put out by Action Phase Games and Indie Boards and Cards, which has a level of multiplayer conflict. And I noted that the upgrading system was very neat. What you do with your deck is also very cool. I still enjoyed that, but I had serious concerns about how the multiplayer conflict elements worked. Namely, when you're doing a multiplayer conflict game, you have to worry about things like kingmaking, you have to worry about things like flexibility of the map, you have to worry about things like people getting beaten down because they are perceived to be winning even if they're not. And suffice to say, the Path of Light and Shadow has more or less confirmed that Although I really like a lot of the neat elements, the way that it handles multiplayer conflict is just too simplistic. It doesn't even seek to address many of the standard problems of the genre, and I wish that someone could finally put out a deck builder that really does multiplayer conflict well. I've tried a lot of them. Martin Wallace has put out a bunch. I kind of liked Mythotopia, but it was too much of a grind. I kind of like Handful of Stars, but again, all these games don't seek to address the multiplayer conflict problems, and as a result, any neat elements they have just get drowned out in my experience, and so, sadly, is the the same for me for Path of Light and Shadow. What was your impression? I liked it. I really liked how you had multiple paths to victory, right? You could build your deck up, you could go the military way, or you could build buildings up, right? So, or you could, I guess you could diversify. I really don't think that would be the way to go. I don't think there's enough points there if you spread across all the different ways, but I totally agree with you. Being perceived as the leader, maybe that's the strategy is don't let yourself be perceived as leader, but then what fun is that? And then people are going to gang up on you. Yeah, a lot of the strategies are really fun. Upgrading your deck is great. Building the buildings is fun. It's just that military component is just kind of degenerate in a way that lots of other overly simplistic conflict games are, which is a, which is a shame because the actual conflict mechanism, the combat itself is fine. It's quite neat. But the problem is the way the game works in Path of Light and Shadow is that over the course of the game, attacks just wear down defenses. And so by the end of the game, you have a whole bunch of hotly contested provinces, which used to be thriving metropolises and now are just burned to the ground. But they're still worth a lot of points. And... They're, they're going to switch hands very, very easily. There's very little you can do to defend them. And so turn order becomes very important, being perceived as leader. Again, all the standard problems in your multiplayer conflict games. And so it, it really is a, a bit of a shame because, as you say, all the other bits are, are really quite interesting. Yeah, the art's good. The towers are a bit fiddly. Switching your cards up are a bit fiddly. But And I think I'm wondering if, you know, the playtesting, they had a bunch of poker chips to represent, you know, these towers and how high they were. And then they decided to use this odd tower mechanism. It seems weird. It works, though, right? But it seems a little fiddly. And that was Path of Light and Shadow. All right, on to, I got to play Catacombs, a great dungeon crawling crocodile game. Got it to the table, still loved it. Too long for my, uh, I think I th- you need to modify it slightly. They want you to do like five full different boards, but I think if you just do three boards, cut out the money where you can. You know, I know there's some characters that, 
you know, thrive on the money part. Just don't use them, especially if you're bringing new character, new players to this game, because it just in today's quick and easy, I think it's a little bit longer than it needs to be. Given the depth of decision-making involved, which is, say, practically none, which is fine for a flicking game, it is indeed very, very long, and it feels unsatisfyingly irrelevant because it's usually going to be decided on the last board anyway. For those of you unfamiliar with the structure of the game, I, I, I quite liked Catacombs 2 for about, you know, the first 50% of it, and then it just starts to drag and drag and drag. It's the case often that the first few boards are going to be entirely irrelevant because any damage that the Overlord, because Catacombs is a 1v-all game, any damage that the Overlord does to the heroes is just going to be wiped out by the healer phase anyway. So you do all these things that are basically preludes to no effect all the way leading to this, this final boss fight, which is probably going to be a stomping exercise for the heroes anyway because the bosses are absurd. And in one of the all games, we talked about this before, balance is often difficult. Sometimes it's the case that there's not enough for one player to do with their own hero. So it's awkward in terms of any player count. You know, you put the full full component of, of five players out and then four you know, the four heroes don't feel they have enough to do, but if you make it a two-player game, sometimes it's too much for the other one player to handle all four heroes. Anyway, I wish Catacombs worked a little bit better. I think it's listed right at the beginning of the book is, it's you know, it's the Overlord's job to make the game fun and, you know, make whatever modification you do to do that. And I think that's a great modification. Make it three boards, let them draw some random magic items, just get on with the game, and uh, I think it'll be great. And that's from Alerzia, Catacombs by Alerzia. What else do you have, Mark? We pulled out Barony. I'd commented before that although I enjoyed the base game, I was vaguely curious and skeptical about the expansion. Barony, uh, the year after it was published, had an expansion called Sorcery. And it's just as deterministic as the base game. Barony is a no-luck, perfect information Euro game. And indeed, when you introduce the expansion, that doesn't change. It does, however, introduce some powers that I think don't really fit in terms of the feel of the game. Barony is a very sort of, and I say this I say this with great enthusiasm, a very plodding game of slow incremental advancement. And the sorcery expansion seeks to kind of upend that with one-shot powers where crazy things happen. And when it was actually crazy things, I wasn't a huge fan of what it was doing to the game state. And when it was just incremental, just more incremental stuff, I didn't feel like it added much to the to the game. So I wasn't a huge fan of the expansion, but I still like the game. It's it's a neat little vaguely abstract thing. If you like pretty perfect information Euros, Barony is a pretty good call. Love Barony. I think the expansion is fine. I think Barony is just good the way it is and because of what it is. Nice, simple, deterministic, chess-like game. I, I'd play with the expansion, but I'd rather just play it base. So you agree that the, the, the expansion doesn't really add much to the experience? Agreed. Okay. Just more setup. It adds more time. It's one of these expansions that takes away, I think, from the game in the long run, in my opinion. Next on mine is Core Worlds by Stronghold. Yet another fantastic deck-building game which I really don't think gets enough buzz that it needs. It has two expansions out for it, all really add to the game. Uh, you're building your deck for either fleet, which is spaceships, or infantry, and robots, and there's different worlds to take, and it'll tell you what you need of each stat in order to, to destroy it, and you buy cards up. It's a really neat system. I like it. Core Worlds is great. A little longer than it wants to be sometimes, and I think that uh, you really need the innovations of the first expansion to really address some of the turn issue problems, but it is a very enjoyable game, and I, I, I do like it every time it hits the table. We also played Antica, specifically Antica 2, 
So Matt Gertz is, uh, I guess, disclosure, I've, I've worked on a number of his designs, including on Tika 2. I've done some uh, editing work for some of his rule books, and I've, I've helped with some translation stuff. Back in the day when I was a playtester, I used to playtest some things, but I, I did not playtest on Tika 2. It is one of his Rundle games. Uh, this is an action selection mechanism that he invented in the first Antika when that was published uh, over 10 years ago. And he's uh, refined it in several other designs. If you've played Imperial by him, he uses the same uh, mechanism there. Navigador, which is an excellent Euro game. Antika is... Uh, the, the first version was published when the sort of grail for everyone was sort of the Civ Light game, a, a vaguely civilization experience that you could get done in under two hours or 90 minutes. And Antika 2 is just the second edition of that game. It, it evens out some of the technologies. It, it simplifies the military system. And generally offers very minor, but I think appreciated improvements. Antika is one of my favorite games. It has been ever since I tried it. It was, in point of fact, the first game that I imported when I was starting in the hobby. I, I got the German edition. And it, very like Barony, it is a perfect information, no luck Euro game. For me, it is not as dry as many other games of that ilk, but I perfectly respect people that do regard it as dry. But what, what gets me about Antica is that it really gives you a lot of the civilization experiences, you know, which is sort of akin to the 4X notion, right? You've got technologies, you expand on the map, you have to worry about military conflict. It's not primarily about military conflict, but the threat of military conflict is kind of there. When I reviewed Scythe, I made the comparison to Antica. It was like that. You don't have a lot of fights, but the fights are consequential and you have to worry about the fights that could start. It is a very accessible game in, game in terms of rules. It is less accessible in terms of overall strategy, precisely because, like any other no-lock perfect information Euro, experience will probably prevail nine times out of ten. And sometimes the huge turns or the, the ability to score massive swings are not perfectly appreciated by people playing it for the first or second time if they're sitting and playing with somebody who's played it many, many times. But I cannot recommend Matt Gertz's games enough. All the Matt Gertz games that I've played have been at the very least excellent, if not brilliant. And Antika is one of my all-time favorites. And every time it hits the table, I'm very, very, very pleased. Yeah, I'm impressed by the... Like you said, the accessibility, it's very easy to teach and you get going almost immediately. It's like collect your resources, which are all listed on the board, spend your resources. It's it's that easy. And like you said, all of his games are great. Imperial 2030, one of my favorite games, have great stories for it. And that's all I have to say, because I think I already went on about my Gen Con Imperial 2030 story. Last game I'd like to talk about is Roman Bones Second Tide, which is the second edition of the Roman Bones game, which is Simon's MOBA style game designed by Michael Chennault. Uh, MOBA being a particular kind of computer game that I find interesting but do not enjoy playing. That is why the board game iterations of it are very much up my alley, as it were. I'm pretty much all in on Rub and Bones, so I've got about 5 million different heroes and a whole bunch of different variety, and I really like the game. It's less dumb than it looks. It's still reasonably dumb, but it's not completely stupid. It care, you care a lot about positioning and proper use of your powers, and more more than anything else proper focus of objectives because there's a whole bunch of game systems about you have this crew it's a pirate themed game and the crew act on their own impulse and you have to be careful about where to push and where to defend when to pull back and and all these things and the movement options are really interesting it's a pretty game i enjoy playing it it's not quite a guilty pleasure because i do think that the game design is solid but i, I think it's underappreciated a lot of people as i've said before are dismissive of, of simon's catalog but i think rum and bones has some genuinely clever bits and it's always fun to play and one thing I will note, and this is just something that I, I find interesting, is that I, I did a little bit of research, and maybe a viewer will be able to correct me. Rum and Bones has had two Kickstarters. 
both of them made hundreds of thousands of bucks. So obviously that means tons and tons of stretch goals and massive, you know, built-in expansions. But it's also had after publication expansions, you know, normal retail distribution expansions after the Kickstarters are over. And it's actually had two. It's had a new faction released, uh, the Vikings, and it had another uh, mercenary box of, of, of add-on figures. And honestly, for the life of me, I, I did some digging. I cannot find another Simon release that has had that. All the other Simon releases... They run the Kickstarter and whatever expansions get unlocked or well, quote unquote unlocked because it's probably planned in advance. That's it. They might do another Kickstarter later on and then that might introduce new expansions. But that, that, that's that been primarily it. So Blood Rage, no, no new material. Rising Sun will probably not get any new material. Even the Zombicide games, they don't have new material other than the stuff that is included in the, the Kickstarters and then reprints of other sundry materials. I have not found substantive gameplay expansions for Kickstarter games that were not released in Kickstarter. And I just find it interesting that they've decided to do that with Rum and Bones. So I don't know why it's been there and not elsewhere, but it's an interesting sort of asymmetry. Yeah, I thought it was great with all the different special powers and all the different things going on all the different figures and it all seemed very tight. You know what I mean? There was nothing that went off, you know, off base or went out of control. And then I really had a lot of fun playing. It's one of those games where a lot of things can and will happen, but the rule set is relatively sparse. And I do appreciate that. And again, I, I find unlike a lot of other games of this ilk, which are just generally move and attack, move and attack, move and attack in rum and bones, you have to be very careful about what you decide to go after and when and repositioning matters a whole lot. So uh, you can't really ask mu for much more, in my estimation, from a skirmish-adjacent type game. That's why I always enjoy Roman Bones. All right, on to the news and why it doesn't matter. So first up, I have Mercury Games, the publishers of the container that was just put out in a big edition. They're going to be putting out a game called Big City, another 20th anniversary edition. And they, this has been rumored to be reprinted for the last, you know, 17 years. And finally, we're going to get a reprint of Big City with all new buildings, new rules, be another Kickstarter. So looking forward to that. This is perhaps unsurprising given that Mercury Games is, is has uh, Kevin Nesbitt, who was part of Valley Games when Valley, Valley Games kind of ceased to be. And Valley Games was indeed supposed to be the ones to reprint Big City, and they were the ones who initially published containers. So it doesn't shock me that Mercury Games is is slowly trying to step up, redress Valley Games's failings. I don't know. Bit of news that I, that caught my attention was that Monster Apocalypse will be returning. Monster Apocalypse was a collectible miniatures game, so it had the blind buy format, which is unfortunate, but it had these lovely pre-painted miniatures, and it was about you know big kaiju battles, giant monsters smashing buildings, and lots of lots of things running around. Monster Apocalypse was a whole lot of fun. It was a difficult game to play casually, precisely because it's one of those games where you're going to have a hojillion different special effects in even the most simple armies. And so it really was one of those games where you, after the game was over, you'd look back and think, oh, I should have been doing this, I should have been doing this, I should have been doing this. And these weren't even strategy issues. These were just issues of, I forgot to use all the abilities of my stuff. And on occasion, I'm fond of those games, but the problem is you can't play them occasionally. You really need to play them over and over so you get to know your, your, your people. Anyway, this was put up by Privateer Press. Privateer Press is primarily the... Uh, their primary product is War Machine, and they kind of... It's weird. Richard Jackson optioned the rights for the Monster Apocalypse movie, and after that, the line just fell into, into disrepair. They stopped publishing things. They never announced that it was dead. It just died a slow death, like many collectible games do. It's 
coming back in a non-pre-painted, non-collectible format, so it's going to be a legit miniatures game where you put together miniatures and then you either paint them or don't paint them. The scale is going to be different, so they say that all the old stuff is going to be incompatible. Maybe we'll see hacks, maybe we won't. But it's interesting that they've decided to bring it back in this way, and I'm glad it's coming back. It was it was a, it was a neat little property. And perhaps they're trying to capitalize off of the popularity, of, or at least the buzz concerning the new Pacific Rim movie. I don't know, but I'm glad to see it come back in whatever form, and I'm, I'm looking forward to giving it a shot again. I'm glad too, because, you know, the market is starved for a small skirmish style miniature game. Pause, pause, cough. My next news item is Death Note Confrontation, a two-player game by IDW. And I'm really a big fan of the series, so I'm really hoping, even though it's IDW, that it's going to be uh, a great two-player card game. We'll wait and see. I saw that Trick Track, which is the one of the most prominent gaming websites in the world, really, and certainly the most prominent one in Europe, which is a French-language board game site. It's basically the French-language equivalent of BoardGameGeek. It is widely consulted in Quebec and in Europe and other places that speak civilized romance languages uh, and other things that Walker has nothing but disdain for because he doesn't understand them. It was purchased by a game publisher. It was bought by Plan B Games. Plan B Games is the latest endeavor of Sophie Gravel. She's also the one who bought Z-Man games, and so she's really sort of snagging up a number of properties. But this is this is a very strange development. The analogy given on by members of Board Game Geek, which I think is apt, it's the, is basically what if Asmodee bought Board Game Geek? The situation is strange. I don't know what the intention is here. I don't know what's going to happen to the editorial policies of Trick I don't know how the users of Trick are going to respond. I've checked a couple places, but they mostly just seem stunned at the moment. It's just strange and bizarre and i think that it's it's indicative of the kind of thing that we might come to expect more and more of in this tiny hobby of ours given that there's number one large quantities of consolidation and number two it's such a small hobby that no one really takes it seriously enough and businesses run by hobbies tend to be relatively casual affairs where we don't pay attention to things like potential conflicts of interest or journalistic integrity which is fine i'm not saying that everyone needs to be murrow or any or we need to worry about trying to get poke awards or anything like that i'm just it's just a little sad when whatever faith you might have had on editorial independence takes a further shot because now Tech is going to be pub- is going to be publishing stories about and hosting reviews and ratings for ratings of games published by their owner which it just it strikes me as a bit ooky suffice to say gotcha next up i have game coming out when we have our beloved animated series things like adventure time or rick and morty or legend of korra When someone gets the intellectual properties of these things, we are always hoping that they'll come out with a great game because these are shows that we really enjoy watching. So, so far we've had a couple of Rick and Morty games. Nothing's really stood out. The Adventure Time one was not that well received either. So we now we have Samurai Jack. It was a fantastic animated series that went off the air for a while, came back for a big fifth season. This game that's coming out by USAopoly is based on the fifth season. Looks like it's got some great figures in it. Other than that, it looks like just one of those, you know, stamp out, ready for a movie type productions, unfortunately. So yet another disappointment on the horizon, I think. Final thing I've got is that North Star Games, which is a publisher of such games as Wits and Wagers and the Evolution Games, has announced that it has a minimum price policy. 
Now, yes, this is not price-fixing in the technical legal sense of the word, but this is very much the same policy that Asmodee and some other publishers have, whereby they tell a retailer, you are not permitted to discount this item past a certain percent. The net effect of this for a consumer, stripping aside all the nonsense in press releases, is that we pay more for their games. That is the long and the short of it. And as per usual, it was released in a press release talking about how this is going to offer more value for our consumers. Uh, just, you know, pro tip for everyone, just because you're paying more doesn't mean you're getting more value. That's a bit of a fallacy there. And how this is going to be great and they'll be able to protect their brand. That much, at least, I partially believe. I just find it interesting that yet smaller publishers are now adopting this kind of policy. And I don't know whether this is primarily motivated to either undercut online deep discounting or just to get more money or some combination of the two. I just find it a little bit dispiriting especially how we get subjected to another round of press releases insulting our intelligence, talking about how this really protects our interests as consumers when uh, when that is not a you remotely gotta, accurate. You got to love the spin. Love spin. My last thing is Renegade Game Studios is going to partner up with a German publisher named Frosted Games to put out another Uwe Rosenberg board game. But this time it's going to be completely different. It's going to be about planting vegetables and farming. So I'm really excited <laughs> about this complete turnaround for Uwe Rosenberg. And the game is called Reichenholt. Unprecedented. I know. It's, it's right off the tracks for him. So it's going to be nice that he's doing something different for a change. All right. So that is all the news that we have for today. On to our feature game for this week, which is Battle Lore by Fantasy Flight. As is my lot in life, allow me to spend perhaps far too much time on the genealogy of this particular game. So Battalore is a game in the long-running commands and color system, as designed by Richard Borg. This is, of course, to be distinguished from Richard Berg. They both design war games, but Richard Berg and Richard Borg are two different guys who design two very different kinds of games. The first commands and colors game was published in 2000. It was called Battlecry, and this was by... Avalon Hill under the Hasbro umbrella, so not really Avalon Hill, of course. It was followed by perhaps the most published release of the Commands and Colors series, which is Memoir 44 by Days of Wonder. I'm not going to bore you by listing all the games, but suffice to say that over the course of the past 18 years that the Commands and Colors series has been in, been in print, there have been 10 different games across 7 different publishers, which is very impressive as far as these things go. And that's not even mentioning the fact that many of these games have many, many, many expansions. Uh, the Commands and Colors Ancient series released by GMT has many expansions covering different periods of time and different armies. Uh, Battlelore has been in two separate editions. We're, we're going to be primarily talking about the second edition published, uh, put out by Fantasy Flight. The first edition was put out by Days of Wonder. And the Napoleonics version has a whole bunch of expansions. Uh, more recent versions have covered such conflicts as the First World War, the American Revolution. So it is a very, very flexible war game system that has seen many editions and many versions. And like many such war game systems a lot of people are just a lot of people gravitate towards the system that appeals to the most the most historically it is largely for this reason that i have completely avoided the american revolution version and the american civil war version because both of those conflicts i find incredibly uninteresting and not particularly engaging as subjects i apologize very sincerely to my american neighbors as I said, the first edition of Battlelore was put out in 2006, and this was published by Days of Wonder, and it was roughly 
the attempt to do the Hundred Years' War in the Command and Color system, but I've had a couple of fantasy elements. A little bit of goblins, a little bit of dwarves, a little bit of giant monsters. It was labeled as a quote-unquote Uchrania, so a slightly altered version of the Hundred Years' War. It saw a number of expansions before the line kind of died out, and then Fantasy Flight bought the rights and put out the, – the first thing they put out was actually a sort of spin-off of the Commands and Colors system, which was Battles of Westeros. And it had a couple of similarities with the Commands and Colors system, but it was very different in a number of ways. It abandoned some of the core design elements that characterized Commands and Colors. It had a whole bunch of expansions, and those things can be found in the clearance bin of your favorite retailer. And they then came out – after that, a couple of years, with the second edition of Battle Lore in 2013, and that's primarily what we're going to be talking about now. It, Despite the fact that it is a five-year-old game, it remains one of our perennial favorites here at So Very Wrong About Games. We're big, big fans, and with that in mind, Walker's going to give you the, in, the brief introduction about what you're going to be doing in a game of Battle Lore second edition. So in these explanations, I'm always deathly terrified of it turning into a rules explanation. So if you think it's too brief and doesn't make sense, I apologize for that, but it's something in the back of my mind that I'm always aware of. So in Battle Lore, what you're doing is you're crafting this fantasy army, much like you did in Games Workshop Fantasy Battles. All the different units have different costs and stuff, so you're taking time and building all your units up that have different combos. Then you get to set up the train. It's a big hex map. Uh, you're going to draw cards that'll tell you how to set up your train. And then you just get right into the game. You put out all these, you put out, there's a card for every unit you've got, and there's 18 different places that you can deploy them. So for every unit you don't have, you're given this decoy card. So you just put out all your cards. Everyone flips them up. You deploy your army so it's nice hidden deployment. And then you're right into the game. You're playing these cards. You draw a hand. It'll tell you what different flanks. Just like Memoir 44, you have left, right, and center. The cards will tell you how many units you can activate and what flanks. And there's all sorts of different special cards that will, you know, manipulate that in different ways. Now you're outflanking your units, uh, your opponent's units. You're rolling dice. You're killing guys. And it's just an all-around great, you know, way to get, you know, one-on-one -on -one fantasy battle feel in, in about an hour and a half. I'd like to start just by emphasizing some of those things that you flagged and how they really are different from all of the other Commands and Colors games. As I said, there's there's 10 different games here, but in many ways, Battle Lore 2nd Edition is the first game that seriously tinkers with some of the fundamental assumptions about the Commands and Colors series. In all those other Commands and Colors games, they're all scenario-based. There's a specific scenario where you have specific units set up in specific places, and you don't really have any ability as the player to modify that. And that's generally fine. Although many of the historically-based scenarios are heavily, heavily imbalanced in favor of the historical victor, that's generally accepted in terms of historical wargaming. And despite the fact that it's very, very light, Commands and Colors at its core is sort of a historical wargaming system. But in Battle Lore 2nd Edition, you really do get to build your army. You're given a point value, just like a miniatures game, and you pick your units. And instead of having a scenario, there's sort of a build-your-own-scenario system, where both sides pull from a random deck of cards, and that gives you options about where to deploy and how to get points. And this is one of the ways in which I think Battle Lore 2nd Edition really improves on the other Commands and Colors games, because setup for Commands and Colors games are a pain. It takes a long time, because you have to put out specific units and specific hexes, and each unit is typically, typically consisting of a certain number of minis if you're playing a minis-based version, or a certain number of wooden blocks if you're playing one of the wooden blocks versions. So you have to get the right blocks, or the right minis in the right place, and all the terrain needs to be lined up. But here, 
setting up is part of the game. Deployment is part of the game. It doesn't take any less time, but number one, it's split evenly across the two players, and you don't have to worry about passing a scenario book back and forth across the table to help do it. And number two, there are tactical choices to be made, and it's fun to think about where to put your guys and what guys to put out. And so as a result of these two consequences, one of the biggest impediments to playing commands and colors is removed because you get this more interactive, faster experience. So that, I think, is one of the ways in which Battle or Second Edition is not only different from, but in terms of play experience, superior to a lot of the other Commands and Colors games. I totally agree. It really brings back that feeling of fantasy battle when you're building your army, or like if you really enjoyed making a uh, Magic the Gathering deck, bringing all the different elements in, seeing how the combos you know go against each other and go against your opponent's units. I think it's a, a great, I really like that part of it with the game. Of all the two-player games with minis that we've talked about, and to a certain extent this is lumping together battle games and skirmish games, and those they're very different. But one thing that Battle Lore 2nd Edition does better than I think perhaps any other game of this rough type that I've ever played is it really does give you the experience of a full tabletop minis game in a box. It's not the exact same as a full tabletop minis game, obviously, but you do get a lot of those elements of army crafting, of being able to pick specific faction units, of being able to leverage these special powers, and being able to deploy intelligently so as to be able to take care of the objectives that you have in front of you. A lot of the other games that we love don't feel quite like that. They feel a little stripped down or a little bit more narrow, which is fine. But the fact that Battle Lore Second Edition is able to get you that is truly impressive. And the different army factions definitely have their own feel. You know what I mean? They have the theme. They have their own unique abilities, and they really feel as though they're different than all the different all the other armies. There's three different armies in the game right now. Two come in the base game, which are the chaosy type, you know, barbarian animal type army. The Empire humans, which have cavalry and archers and wizards, and then the undead, which have all sorts of unnatural undead horrors and skeletal dragons and all sorts of fun stuff. And they came out with uh, two neutral army expansions. You can get some uh, wyver- uh, harpies, or you can get the giant. Oh, they're, and they're, called, f- they're called razor wings. Razor here. wings, yeah. razor wings, uh, giant, and a dragon you can get as well. So all sorts of fun and mystical things you can add to your army. I'm going to have to disagree with you a little bit there. I don't think that the armies feel sufficiently different for me. The units feel great. The unit differentiation is neat, and they are good at specific things, and you can go go have the appropriate specialization. But one of the things that Battle Lore 2nd Edition doesn't give me that a lot of other games of its type do is a genuine feeling of combined arms, of having specialized units that are good for specific purposes. Cavalry in Battle Lore doesn't feel like cavalry to me. It just feels like some other unit. Infantry doesn't feel particularly like infantry. Archers feel different, but that's fine. Whereas in a lot of other Commands and Colors games, cavalry feels like cavalry and does cavalry-type things, and you use them for cavalry purposes. They're fragile, they're mobile, they hit hard, but they can't hold things very well. Similarly, infantry tends to feel a lot more like infantry. I was a little bit disappointed by how... I didn't, I personally, when I'm playing one of the other, when I'm playing one of the three different armies, they don't feel very different or cohesive or coherent as an army to me. Certainly not when compared to other games of, uh, with, with faction differentiation. I will say though, that having been a criticism of battle lore, it is also a criticism that can be applied to all the other commands and colors games. Mostly the different armies feel very similar to each other and they might have slightly different units here and there, but overall they feel overall similar. There's one glaring exception to that. 
which is uh, Commands and Colors Napoleonics. I per- personally, my favorite Commands and Colors game is Commands and Colors Napoleonics. Part of that is the fact that I will always have more enthusiasm for Napoleonics than practically any other setting. But part of that is also the fact that in Napoleonics, you get combined arms, you get unit differentiation, and you also get faction differentiation. The French play differently from the British, who play different from the Portuguese, who play different from the Russians, etc., etc. But that's that's just a minor gripe. I like how the units are differentiated, but not so much how the armies are differentiated. I like how they changed up the fact that you don't get victory points anymore for killing units, right? It's all based on whatever scenario you picked. You draw a hand of three different scenarios from your deck. And it'll tell you how you get victory points, and then the first person to 16 victory points is the winner. It's, I think it's a fabulous system. That is one of the things that's always bothered me about the other Commands and Colors games. In pretty much every other Commands and Colors game, sometimes there are minor changes scenario to scenario, like you get a point for holding this hex, but the rest of your points are going to come from kills. And this is generally pretty weird. It leads to some gamey situations where you order a weakened unit just so they can run and hide, and do other things like that, and sometimes situationally that makes sense, and sometimes it's historically accurate, but it doesn't feel very satisfying. Here in Battle Lore 2nd Edition, every scenario will have a couple of different ways to gain victory points, and they're usually not keyed to kills. So you are encouraged to go seize the advantage, and this encourages a more aggressive style, which is perhaps unsurprising given that this is Fantasy Flight rather than a historical wargame publisher, but it also encourages a greater emphasis on maneuver and about territory control than a lot of other commands and colors sequ- uh, uh, series do. In fact, some of the criticisms, I don't I think they're sometimes overblown, but sometimes people criticize the commands and colors game for not appropriately rewarding taking the offense precisely because you are just encouraged for taking kills. So if you move your guys up, all you're doing is presenting a target. You're not really seizing the initiative. You're just going to get hit first. And that is not really a concern in Battle or Second Edition. And that was very well done. And that's one of the huge changes, which parenthetically, you know, I've already spent enough, uh, spent a certain amount of time talking about the serious changes that Battle or Second Edition has compared to the other Commands and Colors games. This is because this was essentially redesigned by a guy named Rob Kubo when he was working for Fantasy Flight. And uh, his name's not on the box, which I think is nonsense. Richard Borg, of course, invented the system. And I, from what I understand, he did not have any direct involvement in this, the second edition of Battle Lore. All this redevelopment work or, was done by Rob Kuba, and they didn't give him full credit on the box, which I think is a little bit classless on the yeah, part of Fantasy I think he, he really did a great job of incorporating all of the best parts of all the different systems and cutting out all the unnecessary bits and has a really tight, great system. The only detriment I have to it is the setup and tear down is a bear. Like, but it's a trade-off, much like we talked about earlier. Like, if you want these this game where you have to, like Path, we were talking about earlier. When you, if you want a game where you get to upgrade your cards and you have all these mechanisms that you really like and enjoy, you're just going to have to pay the price of this extra long setup, right? So, if you want the feel of this giant epic fantasy miniature battle, then you're just going to have to bite the bullet and take the hit of setting up all these units and getting everything out and getting ready to play. And I, and I think it's not an overly amount of time saying that that's little, that's the only thing I, I can think that would is a detriment to the game. Yeah, because it's a relatively quick game. You get a very satisfying, uh, battle experience with ebbs and flows. 
I've seen lots of games where one person's ahead and they seize all the good territory and their point income is really strong, but then the other person rallies and makes a couple clever decisions and routes them and then they go on to win the day, which is not always the case in a lot of these games that I like. And it plays in about 75 to 90 minutes when you know what you're doing. Given that, the setup takes about 10 to 15 minutes. And yeah, that's a lot of setup. That's a fair amount. But as, we, as we've said before, it's split out evenly between the two players. And part of that is just being able to pick your guys. And that helps you internalize what all your guys do. And it still feels... I, don't, I haven't done a specific side-by-side comparison in terms of timing. But the setup for Battle or Second Edition feels quicker than the setup for all the other Commands and Colors games. So that there's that going for it. And like I said, it's fun to make your army. It's, like I said, it's much like making a deck or making a fantasy battle army. It's neat you know, getting the combos to line up. The question I wanted to ask you, in the other Command and Colors game, can you discard any card to move any unit? Or is that, that's yet another rule that's only in Battle Lore? So yes. that is something that people complain about. Like you just don't get the cards you need to make the essential move. So in Battle Lore, you're going to have a hand of four cards and you get to choose one as your as your command card. And it's going to tell you which sectors you're allowed to activate. So you're going to choose whatever, they'll say two in the left flank and one in the center. So you choose those units, you activate them, they move and attack. And what's been a complaint of other command and color systems is that you might not get the cards you need. And what you can do in Battle Lore is just discard any card you want to activate one unit in any sector. So you have that very important turn where you need that one objective or you have to, you know, fight that one unit, then you can, you know, take the hit, not activate as many units as you normally would, but you got that essential attack in, and I think that's a great change to the rules. I'm of two minds with respect to that change. Part of it is a necessary consequence of the fact that your hand size is only four cards, which in any other Commands and Colors games would just be used uh, to signify that your army is terrible. Other Commands and Colors games, hand sizes typically default to something more like five or six. And you go down to four hand cards only to represent a particularly awful general or a particularly historically disadvantaged side. Here, four is the default. And as a result, you don't have nearly the same ability to plan your future turns that you do in other Commands and Colors games. The typical response to a lot of the criticisms that the the, the other games in the series get is the slightly more sophisticated version of Get Good. And the more sophisticated version of Get Good is never play a card to put a unit in danger unless you know how you're going to follow up with it in the next turn. And you can do that when your hand size is larger. When your hand size is this small, you can't really do that. It's also partially a consequence of another, uh, I think, important decision they made. And this is where I think Battle Lore is just different, not better or worse than the other games of the series. The figure and unit counts in Battle Lore are very small. It is not uncommon in another typical Commands and Colors scenario system to have a, a whole bunch of units with four guys in each of them. So they can take four hits before dying. Battle Lore, the average is actually closer to three figures per unit, and you tend to have fewer units. It is not uncommon to end up with entire wings of your army wiped out, simply because the fact that this is an offense-oriented game, and losing units doesn't cost you a point, and they're more fragile, just as a result of having fewer, fewer numbers. So I think, additionally, that mandated the idea that you can just ditch a card to activate any unit, because your left flank might be gone. You might not have a left flank anymore. And if you've got a four-card four card hand with two cards that say activate the left flank, you'd be 100% boned. So, again, it was a clever design decision to accommodate for the differences. I, I really do think that when, when uh, Mr. Kuba made these changes, he did so with a very keen eye on what, what ripple effects a lot of these design uh, uh, changes were going to have. And so the only other negative I have for this is that they've pretty well finished with Battle Lore 2nd Edition, unfortunately. And 
if you look at the history of what they do with this Tiernoth system, because it's based in Tiernoth with like the rest of their IPs, that they usually go with a standard four faction setup. They did with uh, Rune Wars, Rune Age, and everything else. They have the the Chaos, which they've, they've included, the Humans, which they've included, the Undead, and they usually have Elves. So unfortunately, we did not get Elves. And they've gone out with their new miniature system. So I think we can pretty well rest assured that we'll see no more of Battlelore 2nd Edition. But maybe in a few years we'll see some Battlelore 3rd Edition. It's conceivable. You never really know. Fantasy Flight plays it close to the chest about what they're going to release and when. They don't tend to announce upcoming releases until it's very nearly in the can. And they very much like the death of of other miniatures games that we've talked about. When a, a line of theirs dies, they don't publicly announce, hey, we're not doing anything with this anymore. And sometimes we get surprised when they released Blue Moon Legends out of nowhere. It was completely unexpected. And they've got a bunch of licenses in their back pocket that they might or might not seek to reprint at any given time. I don't really mourn the fact that there aren't elves. I, I hate elves. I think they're stupid. I'm, I'm a fantasy racist is what it is. I, I Look, I defend the right of private businesses to refuse services to elves. I'm, I've been very clear about this, and I think that it's unreasonable to uh, enforce otherwise. But I think it is worth emphasizing how painfully bland and generic the Terranoth world is. I mean, come on. This is just serial numbers filed off, Tolkien and Games Workshop-esque stuff. It's like, oh... Uh, skeletons and skeleton archers and death knights. Oh, well, we've never seen any of that before. It's like, oh, generic fantasy humans. I'll grant you that the red faction, the the, the human barbarians, they're uh, maybe a little bit more different than the rest, maybe, but it's just, look, there's nothing interesting in the Turnoff universe that I've ever seen. I've played Rune Wars, I've played Rune Age, I've seen, although not yet played, the, uh, the Rune Wars miniatures game, which will invariably be swallowed whole, devoured, and then spat out by the Star Wars version, which is coming out soon anyway. Yet another line that Fantasy Flight will probably just dump. Although I could be surprised. I've, I've, I've been wrong about them before. It's just, it, there's nothing there to grab me. It's just super generic fantasy and, and nothing. I, I, I just get bored thinking about it. It is quite tiresome. It's easy for them, though, right? You just erase Lord of the Rings and you insert Warhammer or or Tyrnoth, and it's, it's it saves a lot of time. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's definitely a time saver. Also comparing this game to a lot of the other games of its type, it really is quite accessible. Like, we've talked about how simple a lot of other systems are, but just talking about Shadespire, for example, one thing that Shadespire doesn't do very well is it's not very good at easing new players into the system because you have to build your own deck. When you're playing Battlelore 2nd Edition... There, you can go pretty much the whole gamut. You can take a stock army. They have a whole bunch of suggested armies in the game. You can take that stock army and tweak it a little bit, or you can build a new army from scratch. The same thing is true of your decks of cards. You can either take the recommended deck of card, tar- cards, or you can tweak it a bit if you want. And I really do appreciate it when a game that expects the system to be customizable to at least give you some guidance when you're starting out. And as a result, it's very, very easy to teach someone their first their first play of Battle Lore because although the rules for other games like Shadespire and other games like that are very, very simple, you're then like, well, here's a whole bunch of cards. Go build something, which doesn't feel good, or you build something for them, which also feels like you're telling them how to play. So I do appreciate the fact that they gave you guidance straight out of the box. So all in all, that is Battle Lore 2nd Edition, comes with a great box with two armies they also put out an expansion that has undead and they brought out two other expansions that expand the human army and the chaos army even more with extra spell decks and everything else and like i said the three different neutral armies so i'm sure with a little bit of digging you you yourself could find your own discounted battle lore second edition set and give it a try 
It went on clearance. If you can find it on clearance, it's definitely worth a shot. And let's just be perfectly clear, no game in the Commands and Colors series is what I would call particularly deep or particularly deterministic. We're talking about random decks of cards and random dice results, and some of those dice results are going to be very strange, especially or perhaps even more so in Battle or Second Edition, where we're talking about, again, a lower figure count. And as a result, you're going to have less uh, chance for the probability curve to even out. But if you're an old, experienced Commands and Colors fan and you haven't tried Battle or Second Edition, you owe it to yourself to see the changes in the system because I think they really are quite striking. You might not necessarily like them, but they're interesting to look at. If you've never tried any Commands and Colors game, then by all means give it a shot. My sincere recommendation is pick the setting that interests you the most, which will probably not be Terranoth, unless, of course, you are the blandest human being on the face of the earth. By all means, all you fans of Terranoth, send me your hate mail. Tell me about how incredibly novel it is to have woodland elves with bows and all that other kinds of great in original fantasy nonsense that Fantasy Flight came up with. But anyway, enough ragging on Terranoth. Big fans of Commands and Colors, and I'm a big fan of what they did with it. And I think that Rob Kuba deserves tremendous credit for his development work on this system. Agreed. On to our topic of the week, which is board game hacks in real life. So this is something I came up with that is pretty well things that we've learned in board games that we apply to our real life experiences or that help us in our real life experiences. And much like I said at the beginning, I'm going to start off with my first one, which is just the appreciation of other people's time. Knowing now that, you know, when we get together for games, I know that sometimes it's their, this person's only night off and he's decided to come here to play games. So in other situations, when I'm out and about and I realize someone has met me there, that's taking time out of their thing, out of their day. And just to appreciate, you know, when people dedicate time to help you with projects. Couldn't agree more. I think that one of the things that I, I, I found very, very difficult before I started board gaming was I found it very hard to just get together with people. You know, I'd, I'd think, oh, I want to spend time with this person, but I call it social anxiety, call it whatever you want. I, I just, it's very hard to try to, for me personally, try to find a way to, to schedule time with people. But board games are a great way to do that. And as a result, the people that I enjoy spending time with, I'm able to have structured activities while still enjoying their time because board games, even the most thinky ones, tend to be uh, reasonably social affairs. And just being able to appreciate a, a very sort of technical, gamerly-like experience while still having uh, genuine social interactions is something that I, I very, very much appreciate. And it's uh, just having that extra ability to spend time with people is very much something that board gaming has brought to my life. On a somewhat related topic, this is something that I had already been exposed to because I did a lot of college debating, but uh, one thing that I really appreciate about board gaming that has positively impacted the rest of my life is it, at the best of times, it teaches you how to engage in friendly competition. It, it allows you to be in a situation where there's going to be a winner and loser, but at the end of the day, you have to re respect the fact that everyone still has to be friends. In college debating, we had that same experience because we'd be arguing about things all the time, but we would still have to do so from a position of respect and 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 uh, mutual conviviality. And board game still has the same kind of thing at the best, uh, well, at the best of times. Uh, just set aside my manslaughter conviction after that particularly nasty game, but that's not public records anyway. I'm sure it's been sealed by now. Yeah, nothing's been proven. You're fine. My next thing up is priorities. I work a lot in the food industry over my life and with customers and realizing what needs priority, like in Euro games, when you have all sorts of different things on timers and all everything has to come out at the same time, you have 50 things to do in the day. And in order to prioritize them, 
making sure you, you know, just drop off things that don't matter and having everything come out at the right time. I think playing board games has made this a lot easier for me, like keeping track of things in my head without having to write it down and, and make a schedule. I could just easily, you know, go out throughout the day and remember, you know, what I need to do and have it all happen at the same time. Somewhat relatedly, playing board games has helped me with heuristics. So a lot of people suffer from uh, the difficulty of making decisions randomly. I know a number of people who suffer deliberative breakdown because they need to think of all the pros and cons of everything. But in an average board game, even a relatively light one, you have to make dozens of decisions. Some of them trivial, some of them important, and many of them you make with imperfect information. Very much as in life. And so I've, uh, over the course of playing board games, I've developed, uh, or at least I've started to lean more heavily on uh, heuristics that people have introduced to me about how to make decisions when you don't have all the necessary information. And and allow me to just share them because I I, I think they're fun. An American by the name of John Barth said in uh, one of his novels that if you have the choice of two things side by side, pick the one on the left. If, if they're not side by side, pick the one that came first in time. If that doesn't apply, pick the one that came earlier in the alphabet. These are the laws of sinistrality, antecedents, and alphabetical priority. They're arbitrary, but they're useful. And I've got to say, ever since I learned that, my life has been considerably better because the number of times you have to make truly arbitrary decisions actually mounts up considerably, and you just don't have the mental effort to seriously try to pare down all the the permutations or consequences of any given thing and board games have certainly helped with that as well just you got to take a random card you got to pick a random direction you got to pick a strategy at the beginning of the game it's like eh, screw it and i spend a lot less time calculating and a lot more time enjoying precisely because of all these calculations that board game have board games have me do which is a bit counterintuitive but i'm certainly very appreciative of it next up for me will be in board games you try to manipulate people and motivate them to do things that you want to do or to change the game state or to ally with you or to lean them in a certain direction. So being a manager of people, you want to motivate them. And it's helped me understand that different people have different motivations and a way to access you know, their feelings or to come up with different ways to get them to do what you need them to do. That's the best I can word it. A related issue that I've often find, and this is this is not out of any particular game, but just playing games in general, it's further helped me appreciate how different people have different valuations of game states. Let me give you an example from a couple of friends that I had in uh, back in Boston. They would get in these incredible arguments all the time about whether it was rational to definitively spite someone for the rest of the game if it wasn't in their interest. You'd end up in these situations where my friend would say, if you attack me, I will destroy you, whether it's in my interest or not. And then the other person saying, that's irrational. They would never do that. And then they would go and attack them. And sure enough, the the retaliation would be swift, brutal, and completely against the uh, instigating attacker's self-interest. And then at the end of the game, you'd have this discussion like, well, I warned you. I said I'd do that if you attacked me. But that's irrational. You, you lost the game by making me lose. It's like, well, I said I would do it. And... I was always the third person in this discussion, attempting to demonstrate to them that both views were equally legitimate. And there are a whole bunch of issues in board gaming that are the same. For example, how much do you value a second place finish? Is a second place value, a second place finish equivalent to a third, fourth, or fifth place finish? Many people say yes, many people say no. This is something that I've encountered an awful lot by playing with different kinds of people. And this is really illuminating as to people's preferences and values in a way that you're not often going to get in something like small talk or perhaps 
a, you know, a game of sports ball or something like that. And I do genuinely enjoy seeing people's different value systems in those kinds of ways uh, come to the forefront. Yeah, like you said, coming in second or third or or realizing a strategy is not working and just cutting that off. You know what I mean? Saying this is not working. I need to just let that go. And that, that happens, like I said, you can relate that into real, it's helped in real life when you're working on a project or doing a job or something and you realize that it's not going well. You don't just keep, you know, banging your head against the wall. You just drop it, switch to a different strategy, move to something else, get it done a different way. I feel the same way about friends. Which is probably why I'm not going to see you again after today. Hey, well, you know, I put up with it this long. I'm you're sure, you're but... a sunk cost walker. You're just not worth the. You're a degenerate strategy. I'm just not going to not going to bother with it anymore. <laughs> I've got too many chips sunk in. You know, it's yeah. yeah I'm too deep. What else? What else have you got? I read a fascinating economics paper a few years ago, and it was it, it reminded me of something that I I internalized in uh, in a game called Raw and this is a very specific anecdote but I, I I find it quite interesting it turns out and this is a study so of course there might be dozens of other studies that say otherwise but it's plausible and I I find it interesting there was a study that indicated that very desirable mates tended to be very dissatisfied or much less satisfied with their eventual partners they tended to marry later in life, and they tended to be less satisfied with uh, the people they ended up with. And this is for people inclined to marry. Of course, some people are not inclined to marry. Whereas mates that are regarded as less desirable tend to get married earlier and tend to be much more happy with the people they end up with. And the explanation for this, and this was about uh, this was this was a collaboration between a behavioral psychologist and an economist. The explanation was that this is because relationships permanent monogamous relationships, which of course I'm not saying are better than other kinds of relationships, it's just a kind of relationship, are a very particular kind of auction system. This is an auction where you're only going to win one lot, you're not able to make change, and the bidding, and that is going to influence the bidding strategies. And when I read that, uh, not only did it make sense in my own life, because uh, I'm basically a, a barely functional troll who turned out very, very well in the, the great lottery of life in terms of life partners. I'm, again, not talking about Walker here. But it made me think exactly of the, the auction game Raw. In Raw, you're not able to make change and you're limited in the number of lots you're able, you're able to buy. And anybody who's played Raw knows if you're sitting there and you've got the one or the two, you bid all the time. You bid aggressively and you're happy with whatever you get. But on the other hand, if you've got a very, very high value tile, you always look at the pot and say, is that really worth what I've got? I'm sitting on gold here. I, I shouldn't give it up for just that. I'll wait for later. And then you end up with trash. Similarly, if you know you're uh, a very desirable partner, you're probably going to wait figuring you can always do better. But if you know that you're, you're, you're basically some sort of troglodyte, you're going to, you know, accept the fact that you need to go and bid aggressively as it were. And, uh, so yeah, that, it turns out that raw can teach you a, a fair bit about uh, behavioral economics. So the last thing I've got is that there's always a better way to do something. That when you play games, you have a certain strategy and you always play the same way or or you think your way is the best. That you always have to keep an open mind and there's always a better way to do something. This is what I've learned playing board games. If anything, this is this is probably just a different difference in perspective. I've learned the opposite. I've learned the importance of settling. It's the importance of recognizing that maybe if you sit there and think for 10 minutes and you analyze every possible possibility and consequence, you might eke out a point or two. But really, for the sake of improved satisfaction of the game system, not antagonizing everyone you're there, and just for the sake of ease of effort, you know, 
good enough will do just fine. Now, maybe that's just a difference in perspective. I, I'm off. I'm a very, very conservative individual in the sense that I'm very, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to settle for good enough. I never hold, or at least I try to never hold the perfect in opposition to the good. And that certainly has manifested itself in, in analysis paralysis and that I don't tend to suffer from it. At least I don't think. I'm usually happy to just go with whatever seems good enough. Uh, but that that's interesting. Oh, what I, what I what I'm trying to say there is keep yourself open to other people's ideas. Oh, sure. It's like not your way is not always the best way. Oh, okay, okay. Yes, that kind of humility is 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 often best. And yes, seeing seeing someone pence you at a board game by taking advantage of those opportunities that never occurred to you is a very good reminder of that. I agree. Exactly. The last thing that I've got is something that I've been reflecting on very, very recently. One of my many, many, many shortcomings is that I'm very bad at spatial analysis. I'm just not very good at visualizing things. I'm not very good at imagining how things fit together. Partially as a result, I'm not very good at parking and a whole bunch of other things. But I have noticed, and I I don't know if this is just confirmation bias or, or what have you, I think I've gotten slightly better at it as I get older, unlike other things. And I have to think it's because of board games like Tigris and Euphrates, like uh, like other games like that, where I constantly have to visualize the spatial effects of certain changes because I recently moved. And so I had to assemble vast quantities of Ikea furniture. Uh, we did a new Ikea ki- kitchen and we assembled all the cabinets and we assembled all manner of other things. And this is largely because, number one, the aesthetic of Ikea is perfectly tall- acceptable to me. Again, QV, accepting good enough. Not a sponsor. <laughs> and uh, also number two, because real furniture is expensive. Grown-up furniture is so expensive. Anyway, and I actually found, and I, right from the beginning, that visualizing how things fit together, which I've done in the past, and I had a great deal of difficulty for, I think I'm getting better at it. And I, I really do think that it's because of board games. So uh, thank you, Tigers and Euphrates. Thank you for other games like that. I, I do think, I'm still not very good at it. Right, I'm not going to claim that I'm that I've improved substantially, but it does feel a fair bit easier, and I have to attribute that to my all, hobby activities. It was all junk art. Junk art did it for you, knowing how the space, all, all the pieces go together. That's that's how it all works. Yeah, they should put that as a tagline on the on the box. Have fun, master space and time. Agreed. I just want to emphasize, though, uh, with all these reflections, I don't claim to be any good at any of these life skills that we're talking about. I just claim that I feel like I'm getting slightly better as a result of hobbies, which is pretty rewarding because in, in the past, most other hobbies I've had have not, I think, paid these kinds of dividends, or at least I haven't perceived any kind of dividends like that. So that's going to do it for this episode of So Very Wrong About Games. Thank you very, very much for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. That's J-U-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-A-D-I-C-E at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at all the games you like. For a more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our new Board Game Geek Guild. We are guild number 3236. That's 3236. The URL is boardgamegeek.com guild 3236. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks very much again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Take care. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. <laughs>